Well, good morning. Happy Independence Day. My name is Tad Skinner, as Todd mentioned. Uh, kids, you can be dismissed to the Gospel Project. Uh, there's some teachers out there that will take you over to your over to your buildings, over to your classrooms. And for the rest of us, we'll be in Colossians chapter 2, so you can turn there now. Colossians 2, and we'll be in verses 16 through 23 this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one under your, the seat in front of you, a blue Bible. You can look on page 572. Again, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. So I'm sure you've all witnessed little kids imitating their mom or dad. It's really cute when they say the same thing that, that you say or say it in the same way you do it, uh, at least as long as you're saying the right things. It's not so cute if you've let some words out that you shouldn't let out. Um, it's also cute when they pick up and repeat mannerisms that, that you have or when they're wearing the same sunglasses or your shoes and they walk around in those. It's really, really cute imitations that we can see. And then we've seen some pretty stupid imitations as well. One thing that really has irritated, irritated me is back during COVID times when they would pipe in crowd noise to live sporting events, trying to fool us into thinking that there were actually lots of people there, uh, or laugh tracks on sitcoms. Some of you will know what I'm talking about with that, when they pipe in fake crowd noise to, to make people laugh uh, to the sitcoms that are going on. Uh, one other imitation, Coke Zero, which tastes nothing like real Coke. Uh, or maybe some stupid imitations, some dangerous imitations, such as when you try to imitate Michael Jordan in your front yard and you end up tearing your ACL. So we've seen some really cute imitations, some uh, really uh, foolish imitations, stupid and dangerous imitations as well. And today we're going to talk about a really foolish and dangerous imitation, one that maybe we don't even realize we're making. So Ginny Samsil is going to come up, uh, come on up and read for us. She's one of our longtime members. Get to know her if you don't know her, her and her husband Dan and Lucas. And Ginny, please read uh, Colossians 2. Okay, thank you. Good morning, church. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Great. Thank you. So... One of the underlying threats facing the church at Colossae was that they were under attack by their culture. And really, that's no different for any, any church at any time in history. Uh, all of our churches at every time have been under attack. But here, the Colossian culture was defining truth in a way that was counter to the gospel. And essentially, they were being told that the gospel was either anemic and needed to be bulked up, or that it was bloated and it needed to be cut away. 
So here Paul addresses three threats to the gospel, three wrong ways that a believer in Christ attempts to continue on in their faith after he or she has received Christ. If you remember last week, Paul implored us to continue on in the faith in the same manner in which we received Christ. He's reminding us here to continue on in Christ by avoiding these temptations. So he's warning against three imitations of the real thing, three isms. He's warning against legalism, he's warning against mysticism, and he's warning against asceticism. So these are not funny or cute imitations, they're actually deadly imitations. Legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. So we're going to talk today about how do we avoid a bad case of the isms. So let's see today that Christ is the real thing and that there's no need to fill ourselves with imitations. So before we get into those particular isms, uh, let's explore the, the prime example that Paul uses to help us. He says that Jesus is the substance and not the shadow. It's actually really brilliant and helpful. Uh, let's think that through. There's many people in history who have cast a long shadow. A lot of great men and women, people like uh, Abraham Lincoln or Rosa Parks or, or Martin Luther. Great men and women. There's some rather evil and awful men and women as well. Men and women who through their personalities or their accomplishments or their ideology have cast a long shadow. Their influence remains even after they're gone. But one, one thing about them, and really one thing about all of us, is that they only cast, we only cast a shadow in one direction. Every single person who has ever lived only casts a shadow in one direction, except Jesus. Jesus is the only person who ever lived who cast a shadow before he was born. Take a look at uh, this description of what Jesus did after his resurrection. Many of you are familiar with Luke chapter 24, 27. We read, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus, after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, he, he's walking along and he meets uh, two disciples, and as they're walking on the road to Emmaus, they begin talking, and Jesus shares how all of the Old Testament was pointing forward to him. All of the Old Testament was about him. So when it says Moses, it means starting with the book of Genesis. And when it says all the scriptures, it means all, every last one. Every dietary law is about Christ. Every moral point, every maxim, every story Everything in the Old Testament is written to show us the need for the one who was to come and, in fact, did come, Jesus. Everything else was just a shadow, and Jesus is the substance. So Jesus cast a long shadow long before he was born in Bethlehem, long before he died on Calvary. And Jesus' shadow extends to the very beginning of time. He is the substance. He towers over and above all of human history. His birth separates the calendar between B.C., before Christ, and, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. No one can deny the influence that Jesus has on all of our culture. He's the substance, and he casts a shadow in all directions over all cultures and over all time and over all of human existence. I love this quote. It was originally attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte, but I, I think it's... Some people have debunked it. Some people say it's, it's not really 
He didn't really say this. Some people still defend it and say it's his. It really doesn't matter. I think it's a cool, a cool quote, so we're going to read it. Supposedly, Napoleon said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible terms of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions would die for him. If Socrates would enter the room, we should rise and do him honor. But if Jesus Christ came into the room, we should fall down on our knees and worship him. Now, look, I'm not really sure that we should rise and give Socrates honor. I'm sure he's a great guy, but I do know that we should fall on our knees and worship our Lord Jesus Christ. We should recognize him for who he is. He is worthy of all of our worship. And we have no need of shadows. We have the real thing in Jesus. So why do we look to shadows? Well, it's really silly when you think about it. It'd be as though on a, on a sunny day, you and I meet outside, and instead of looking you in the eye and having a conversation with you, I begin to look at your shadow, and I try to have a conversation with your shadow. You, you would think I was crazy if I did that, and yet that's what we do when we look to things other than Christ. We have the real thing, and we have no need of imitations. So now let's take a look at what some of these imitations are, some of these isms, some of these threats to the gospel. And we're going to reverse Paul's order. We're going to go through them in reverse order. All of these isms have been and are threats to the Christian, but some are more of a threat depending on the culture and the time. And this last ism that Paul presents to us is asceticism. And we're going to address it first since it's not as common to us today, not as common for us today. So let's remind ourselves by reading verses 20 through 23 again. God's word said, it says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So asceticism is not a word that we often use. Uh, some of you have probably never heard that word. Uh, some of you maybe have, but uh, I, I would imagine that regardless, it, it's just not a common concept for us as Americans. Asceticism is not something that we are used to. So let's define our terms so we know what we're talking about. Asceticism is denying yourself something that you need or something that you want. So it's self-denial, denying yourself something that you need or something that you want. But asceticism, when it's related to spirituality, is denying yourself something, uh, even something good, so that, or in order that, you can get closer to God. So I'm denying myself something, even something good, so that I can feel good about myself, so that I can feel righteous, or so that I can feel uh, as though I'm a good person. I'm going to deny myself this thing so that I can feel good about myself. All right, so it's giving something up as a way to earn your righteousness. So asceticism is, as I said, it's admittedly not a popular concept in our American culture of, of consumption, a constant consumption, always wanting more, but asceticism is still a threat to our spirituality. 
So maybe some examples from, particularly from church history, when it has been a threat at various times, would be helpful to us as we think through this. So let's talk about marriage. Marriage is a good thing, but if someone denies themselves a romantic relationship or, or a marriage in order that they can feel good about themselves or in order that they can feel as though they're closer to God, that would be spiritual asceticism. That's one of the things that Paul is talking about. That's one of the things that happened in church history. Another from church history. God's creation is, is a wonderful thing. It, his creation extends from things that we can see to places that we can go to, to things that we can eat. But denying yourself the good things of God's creation in order to feel good about yourself, in order to, to puff yourself up, yourself up, in order to feel like you're righteous in some way, so you can grow closer to God, that could be asceticism. And then another that's happened often in church history is sex. Sex is a good thing. But denying marital sex in order, so denying yourself sex or denying your, your spouse sex in order to feel good about yourself, in order to puff yourself up, I'm going to give up sex so that I can feel closer to God, so that I can feel better about myself, that would be asceticism. And believe it or not, that is something that happened in church history as well. So, all spiritual asceticism does is starve the flesh and increase temptations. It has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, as Paul talks about. It creates a joyless life. But we, as Christians, are called instead to live life in the full joy of God's creation. Everything he created is for us to enjoy within the confines of morality and moderation. So again, our, our American society doesn't seem to have much problem with, with asceticism. Really, it's the opposite. We tend to consume, consume, consume. But the, the principle is the same. Whether we're denying ourselves something in order to feel good about ourselves or whether we're, we're taking something in uh, to satisfy ourselves, re regardless, we're forgetting Christ. We're trying to puff ourselves up. We're, we're looking to a substitute rather than to the, the real thing, the substance of Christ. So last week's passage reminded us that we're rooted in Christ because he has already saved us. And asceticism is forgetting that we're rooted in Christ and attempting instead to build ourselves up through self-denial. When we do that, we may look all right on the outside, but inside we're spiritually distant from God and we're relying only on our personal disciplinary habits for our righteousness. Those things are shadows, but Christ is a substance. He's the real thing, and we need not fill ourselves with imitations. So asceticism. The second thing that Paul talks about is mysticism, and I think that's a little bit more familiar to us. Let's read verses 18 and 19 again. Paul says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So if asceticism props up the Christian through self-denial, through, through disciplinary habits, mysticism attempts to prop up the Christian through spiritual activity. Now what's, what's really going on here that, that Paul's referring to? Well, uh, apparently there were several in the 
uh, city of Colossae, around the church, maybe in some people inside the church who were telling the believers there that Christ wasn't enough. That in order to really be spiritual, in order to really be a Christian, you really needed to be involved in, in things more in the spiritual realm. You needed to worship angels. You needed to seek out visions and new spiritual experiences. So it was so extreme and out of place that they, they likely were denying themselves necessities like food and water in order to induce a vision. And once they had that vision, they would then boast about it. And they would get their righteousness from, I had this wonderful vision from God. So it was a, it was a way to focus on yourself and make, your, make much of yourself rather than focusing on what Christ and what Christ has done. So there was an arrogance in that. Now, some of that may seem irrelevant to us today. I think most of us are not at all tempted to worship angels. We're not really denying ourselves in order to have some sort of spiritual vision either. I would imagine that most people in this room are not doing that. But we, we know that we shouldn't be doing it. I think that, that we've, uh, many of us have been in this church long enough or we've been taught well enough. We know that we shouldn't be worshiping angels. We shouldn't be doing those things. So I think the tendency might be for us to... Um, uh, just kind of cast this, this part of Paul's teaching, this part of God's word off as irrelevant to our lives. But I don't think it is. Perhaps you have people in your life who are doing these kinds of things. I would imagine that many of you do in your workplace or in school. Uh, you have people that are doing these kinds of things, seeking out a new spiritual experience. This is still relevant for us today. Many people still so seek out a, a psychic or a medium, reading your palm to tell you the tell you the future. I, I hope that you don't do that, but really just a half mile down the street here on, on Ash, there's somebody that's been in business for, for decades that, that does that. People seek out psychics and mediums. So psychics may seem extreme for most of us, but, but what about astrology? How many times in the past year have you been asked what your zodiac sign is? That can be easy to dabble in. But, but friends, we know that that's, that's untrue. We know that's ridiculous, don't we? What month or time period you, you were born in has nothing to do with what kind of personality you have or what kind of day you're going to have. Uh, Saturn does not determine what my day is going to be like. And it doesn't determine what your day is going to be like either. But we still seek out those spiritual experiences. We're still looking for things other than God or looking to things other than God for an understanding of ourselves and our place in this world. And yet we, we do that kind of thing often. So again, apparently the Colossians were in danger of doing that. They were in danger of worshiping something lesser. They were in danger of seeking after an imitation rather than continuing on in the real thing. The shadow instead of the substance. So Paul references the real problem here in verse 19. Take a look at verse 19 again. The source of the problem is in not holding fast to the head, not holding fast to Christ. And Paul makes this point in others of his letters, but he's saying that the body of Christ grows as its members learn and grow in Christ. The main point is that Christ is the ultimate source of growth. So Paul began this section saying, let no one disqualify you. So, brother and sister, if we're, we're already members of the body of Christ, no one can rule us out. No one can cut us off. So, 
So don't give in to the pressure to seek some new spiritual thing. As Hebrews chapter 4 says, we can go directly to Christ. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are members of the body of Christ. We have all that we need in him. We, we don't need to add to our faith by seeking out new spiritual experiences. We have a great high priest, Jesus. He is the substance. So last week's passage reminded us that we're rooted in Christ because he's already saved us. Mysticism is forgetting that we're rooted in Christ and, and attempting instead to build ourselves up through new spiritual experiences. When we do that, we may look all right on the outside, but inside we're spiritually distant from God. Those things are shadows, but Christ is the substance. He's the real thing, and we need not fill ourselves with imitations. And the last thing that we'll address today, and the, the first thing that Paul addresses is the issue of legalism. And I think this is one that we're most familiar with. Legalism, when used in the context of religion, is an overfocus on the moral law, an overfocus on the moral law. It's looking to the moral law to make us right with God. Legalism is placing the law above the truth of the gospel. Now, I think we all do that fairly often, unfortunately. Look again at verses 16 and 17 to see how the Colossians were in danger of doing that, depending on the moral law rather than depending on the fullness of Christ. We read, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now this, this will take a bit of an Old Testament history lesson for us to understand what's going on here. And when I say that, some of you will be really excited about that and some of you are going to want to tune out. Uh, but I would really encourage you to stay with this. I think this will be really helpful to help us understand what the, new, what the Old Testament says in relation to, or how, sh how we should interpret the Old Testament in relation to the New Testament. So grab your pipe and your bifocals and your old stodgy history hat, and we're going to go through a little history lesson, Old Testament history lesson here. So in the Old Testament, before the fullness of God was known through the God-man Jesus, God instituted the law. And the law had many purposes and many parts. And one part of the law included the dietary laws. They were, there were physical uh, purposes or reasons for the, the dietary law, uh, such as it, it generally promoted healthier eating, healthier habits, uh, the dietary law that, that was instituted. But there were also spiritual purposes to the dietary laws. Now, when you think of dietary laws today, you probably think of Weight Watchers or, or carbs and protein or the paleo diet or some of you like the seafood diet. I see food, I eat it. Uh, regardless, when you, when you think about that, regardless, the dietary laws in the Old Testament were mainly meant to set the people of God apart from other people groups, to remind the people of God that they were different from others around them because God had set them apart. They were meant to help God's people understand the concepts of purity and impurity. So there were 
things that God called foods that God called pure and foods that God said were impure. Now, those concepts were key in helping uh, the people of God to understand God's pure holiness and humanity's impure unholiness because of sin. If you're interested in the Old Testament law, take a look at at, uh, the book of Leviticus, particularly chapter 11, talks about the dietary law. And some would say that portion of the Old Testament is is rather boring and unhelpful. But I would tell you that I I don't think it is, especially if you've got your pipe and your monocle and your your old stodgy hat and you you come ready to read the words on the page looking for how does the, the Old Testament apply? How does it point forward to Jesus and our need for Jesus? So the law is helpful and good. So make no mistake, the law is helpful and good. God gave it to us for a reason, and it was from God. But even so, it was just a shadow. It was not the substance of Jesus. It was just a substitute. And we know that because the ceremonial law, the dietary law, were both abolished or made obsolete when Jesus came. We see that in Mark chapter 7, when Jesus responded to the religious leaders of the day. Uh, It says, and Jesus said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Now you, you can look at Acts chapter 10 as well, that the whole of the New Testament teaching is unified, that all food and drink are now lawful. The concepts of purity and impurity that the dietary laws were pointing towards are now fulfilled through the the birth, the teaching, the the death, and the resurrection of Christ. The Holy One came down from heaven and took our sin, and through His sacrifice, His purity was given to us. And now we see the shadow of the law and the substance of Jesus. All right, Keep, keep your pipes lit and your hat on, and we're going to look at history lesson, Old Testament history lesson number two. So, just as the Old Testament had dietary laws that were in place, in part to teach the Israelites about holiness and purity, impurity, being set apart, they too had days set aside to celebrate and remember special events. Memorializing events are still part of our culture today. Today, for instance, we, we celebrate a, a day that is near and dear to all of us. At least it should be. If you don't celebrate today, there is something wrong with you. And of course, I'm talking about my half birthday. Today is, today is my half birthday. So uh, do you think I was talking about Independence Day or something? So uh, we should celebrate Independence Day, that, that uh, independence from the dastardly evil British people. Uh, so we got rid of them and now we're on our own, but I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But It is my half birthday, so uh, tonight when you're lighting fireworks and sparklers, think of me and celebrate me on this special day. But anyway, in the times of the Old Testament, the people of God were told to set aside special days too. They had feast days. You can take a look at Leviticus 25. They had uh, new moon celebrations. Isaiah 1 talks a little bit about that. They had Sabbath days. We're more familiar with that. Uh, You can find something about that in Exodus chapter 20. Now, the feast days were in place to memorialize the works of God, and the Sabbath pointed towards the eternal rest that God had promised his people. But as Paul says, these are just a shadow. The real thing has come 
in Christ. All right, you can set your pipe down, take your monocle off and uh, your hat, and that's the end of the Old Testament history lesson for today. Back to what was going on in the city of Colossae at this time. So apparently some were telling the believers there that the way to be spiritually full was to add to what Christ had already done. Jesus wasn't enough, they would say. The way to enhance your spirituality, the real way to God, was by returning to the dietary laws of the Old Testament, by returning to an observance of certain uh, calendar rituals or calendar celebrations. So why? Why would they do that? And why is legalism so enticing? Why is it so enticing to add to what Christ has already done? I think there's, there's several reasons for that. Maybe, maybe it's because we want to blend in. Maybe thinking, if I focus on following the rules, I'll look like everyone else. I think there's probably some truth to that. But I think the biggest reason is because we can't really measure our spirituality on our own. For many, life is just easier if we have a set of rules to follow. With rules, you can see how you measure up against a standard or against other people. So our ungodly flesh embraces religious rules and orders. We're drawn to legalism. Legalism makes sense to most of us. So to be clear, there's nothing wrong with dietary principles. If you're, if you're seeking to be healthier physically, I, I would imagine that probably the vast majority of people in this room have been on a diet at some point in time. Does, does anybody like being on a diet? Everybody hates diets, right? But, but they can be good and they can be healthy because they help us to, to live a healthier life. We should eat healthy and in moderation. But dietary principles in the types of food and drink that you take in or the things that you do eat or don't eat is not a symbol of your spirituality. So strictly speaking, someone who is vegan is no more or less spiritual than someone who isn't. Someone who drinks alcohol in moderation is no more or less spiritual than someone who doesn't. And even somebody who eats cake and ice cream for breakfast in moderation is no more or less spiritual than somebody who doesn't. We should eat healthy and in moderation, but we should not impose that on somebody else. So the same thing goes for the observance of religious holidays. There's nothing wrong with celebrating or commemorating events. In other words, with diets and dates, do what you want to do. Take them or punt them away. There's great liberty within the Christian faith. Just don't force someone, don't compel someone to abide by a set of dietary principles or a set of dates that must be celebrated. That's legalism. So what makes spiritual legalism enticing is that legalism in and of itself, just legalism in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. Legalism in some settings is good and helpful. Uh, I tried to think of an example. Here's just one that I could think of. Uh, my, my wife and I married poor strictly speaking. We were in college. We didn't have any real jobs, or at least not anything that, that would pay um, us much. But we were determined. We set out. We, were, we did not want to be in debt. So we, we didn't want to have credit cards that we couldn't pay off. We didn't want to have car loans on a regular basis. We just determined to do that. And so we were very cheap, or frugal, if you want to put a nice term to it, but, but we were cheap. We were very cheap in the way we lived. We ate so many hot dogs and bean burritos 
uh, those first few years, I can't stand hot dogs. I won't eat bean burritos anymore. I just can't stand those things. We, we ate out no more than once per week, and sometimes not even that for probably the first seven or eight years of our marriage. We were legalistic about that. We had a, a purpose to save money. We didn't want to get in debt. We wanted to, to not spend more than we should. And I think that though that was legalistic, that was okay. That was actually freeing for us. That was not a point of contention for us. We were both on the same page with that. We both wanted that. And that was actually good and freeing and helpful for us. So I'm, I'm not making a point about the way we did things. It doesn't make us better or worse than anybody else. I'm just saying that legalism can be good in a variety of different settings. But legalism is deadly in the spiritual realm. Relying on your religious activity for your status before God or your righteousness will only lead to disappointment and frustration. Legalism produces a surface-level faith, a faith that relies on outward appearances rather than inward heart change. Legalism leads to judgmentalism. It demands that everyone look and act the exact same way. There is no joy in spiritual legalism. So the issue is our heart and not our behavior. It always, the issue is always our heart. Uh, Isaiah the prophet recorded these words of God in chapter 29. He said, And the Lord said, This people, talking about the Israelites, draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. God was saying that the people of Israel were legalistic. They were concerned more with outward appearances than they were with their own heart. And as a result, they were showing, their hearts were showing that they were far from God, even though outwardly it looked like they were close to God. Legalism aims at behavior change. Behavior change always misses the, the, the mark of the real target, and that's the heart. Our hearts are what needs to change. So last week's passage reminded us that we are rooted in Christ because he has already saved us. And legalism is forgetting that we're rooted in Christ and attempting instead to build ourselves up through relying on our own good works. And when we do that, we may look all right on the outside, but inside we're spiritually distant from God. And we're just relying on our religious activity for our righteousness. These things are shadows, but Christ is the substance. We have the real thing, and we need not look to imitations. All right, friends, let's spend just the last five minutes or so applying this to our lives. So how do you get rid of a bad case of the, the isms? What's the antidote? Well, the, the antidote to the answer, the antidote to legalism, to mysticism, to asceticism is Christ. Paul mentions the need for Christ in all three of these sections. In verse 17, where he addresses legalism, he calls Christ the substance. He calls Christ the real thing. In verse 19, where he addresses mysticism, he says that we are to grow in Christ. And in verse 20, where he addresses asceticism, he says that we're not bound by sin. In fact, we are dead to sin. And why is the believer dead to sin? Well, the believer is dead to sin because of Christ, because of what Christ has done. So the answer is always Christ. Christ is the real thing. Everything else falls short. So I would ask you this morning, what are your shadows? 
What are the things that you look to for your salvation or for your righteousness or your self-esteem? Is it some form of legalism? Is it our time with God each day, our church attendance, checking the boxes to, to show that we're, we're doing the right things? Is it your personal morals, your ethics of, of not stealing from the workplace or, or not cursing or whatever personal morals that you have? Or is it our, our role of being a good parent or a good student? Is that where you're getting your righteousness? Those are good things. In fact, those are even commanded things, but they're not the necessary things for our salvation. Only Christ is sufficient for our salvation and for our continued right standing before God. Our security in Christ is not dependent on these things or anything else other than Christ and his finished work for us on the cross. Christ is the answer to legalism. Or is your shadow some form of mysticism that you cling to in order to feel good about yourself? Uh, are you tempted to add to Christ by dabbling in spiritual experiences like uh, zodiac signs or praying to saints or, or something like that? Those, those are false gospels. Those are false experiences. Only Christ is sufficient. Or is it some form of asceticism that you look to for salvation? Or in, in the culture of this day, in our culture, is it anti-asceticism? Is it just consumption? Are you, are you gaining your self-esteem, your self-worth, your righteousness from how many likes you got on your latest post, from how much money's in your bank, and whether you have a nice car on the street? Do you spend more time looking at the stock market or at your Robinhood app than you do looking at your Bible? Have you spent more time thinking about or buying the clothes that you're going to wear to prep for, for the week ahead than you have prepping your own heart for worship? Those are all shadows. Only Christ is sufficient. Now listen, here's the answer. The answer to legalism is the grace of Christ. To bathe yourself in the reality that he chose you when you had no worth on your own. We we're filthy sinners deserving of hell, and yet he chose us to be his children. Rest in the truth that our worth is only found in the work of Christ and what he has done for us and not in our own works. The answer to mysticism is found in holding fast to Christ, as verse 19 says. We are so tied up in him, so closely related to Christ, that he is our spirituality. We have all we need. In him. He is enough. And the answer to asceticism is shown in verse 20. We who are believers are now dead to the things of this world. We are dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. Material things are nothing compared to Christ. So neither the denial of these things nor the consumption of these things will bring us closer to, closer to Christ, and nor will they solve our utmost problems. The answer is Christ, and the answer is Christ, and the answer is Christ. Just as we learned last week, we continue on in the same faith, the same manner in which we received that faith in Christ. So don't fill yourself with imitations, because Christ is the real thing. And if there's anyone here today who is not yet a believer in Christ, then admit to him that you've been chasing after shadows, and shadows will not satisfy. 
They will not save us. They won't fulfill us. They won't meet our deepest needs. The only one worthy of doing that is our perfect, holy Savior, Lord, Jesus Christ. He is the real thing. And I'd encourage you to talk to me or someone around you today if you want to see the substance and stop chasing after the shadows. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Christ. We thank you that he is the real thing. God, that we need nothing else. Uh, We don't need to add anything to what he has already done for us. So God, forgive us as believers in in you for times when we we put our focus on our righteousness, our our righteousness that's gained through our works, that's gained through self-denial, that's gained through new spiritual experiences. Help us instead to turn back to you And Father, we we pray that for those in the room that that are just chasing after shadows, that they would see that that will not satisfy, that only you will satisfy. So God, we pray that they would turn their hearts to you, that you would reach down and convict them and show them the need that they have for you, even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.